wonder what kind of person you are when you tell a story. Or how do you tell a story? Let's, for example, think about what you've been doing over the weekend. You get to work tomorrow morning and someone says, what did you do? And it's been a lovely weekend. And you've got to then tell them the story of the weekend. Let's say, for example, you had a wonderful barbecue yesterday evening or something of, you know, similar and so on. You, it's a particular piece of information or news that you want to get to your friends. But you're one of those people that likes to include every detail. And by that, I mean that you know, when you, you're, the end product is, I had a lovely barbecue on Saturday night, but on the way there, you want to tell them every single detail about what you did, how you prepared, you know, where you went to go and get various things. Uh, every tangent that you possibly could come along with, you take those tangents, but you end up, we had a lovely barbecue. So let me just give you an example. You know, if you're um, the barbecue, if you're South African, you caveat at the beginning and say, it's not a barbecue, it's a braai, because we have big bits of steak. So that's how you start with all the details. Then you, you probably go and say, oh yeah, I bought this steak. And I'm, you know, South Africans get really excited about the steak that they buy, and it's like, it was a 20-ounce, uh, it's a rump, it's got a bit of marbling on the left, it was beautiful. I put it on, and I just got my barbecue briquettes just right at the right temperature, because I did an A-level in brying, and so on. You know, and you go to, I, I bought my beers from here, they were at minus 2 degrees centigrade, because that's what I'm told. You know, and they go on every single detail. But essentially, you get to the end point, it's the same. I had a lovely barbecue on Saturday evening. Now, maybe you're that kind of person, that you, you exhaust every detail. Or maybe you're on the other end of the spectrum, and you walk into your office on, Sunday, on Monday morning, you go, what did you do? Lovely barbecue, Saturday evening, and you sit down. Well, that is essentially what we've got in Judges 4. Think about what your storytelling technique is. And when you approach any story, especially noted in the Bible, You've got to understand not only the content of the story, but also the style of the story. What's the author's intention? How the author has mapped out that story? Because Judges 4 is a really condensed history. Uh, The the, the look at the brevity of some of the stories and how it goes. You don't get any markers, for example. You get no note of what Barak does in his march on Sisera. You get no information about Sisera's flight away from Barak at all. Nothing about that. These are massive movements within history. Yet there is no detail there. It is a very brief story in that regard. But also, more importantly, did you notice that there's no moral commentary? The writer doesn't say, and that was awful, or that was great. And I want us to be very careful that we don't make a very ill-informed judgment about what's going on here because of this. One Hebrew scholar put it this way, he says, The economies of a biblical writer, that is what he omits or ignores or sometimes condenses, will frequently disclose what he does not think important. So when J.L. tent-pegs Sisera's head to the ground, and it's pretty shocking, the writer doesn't apologise, did you note, for the brutal murder. He doesn't condemn J.L., nor does he praise J.L. The point? Well, the circumstances around that story are secondary, if you like, to the bigger work of the amazing story of God's salvation plan within this story here. 
So the Hebrew reading uh, these two chapters, they would see more clearly this uh, than ever we can because we don't know the Hebrew. Uh, The way that the story has been plotted gives the reader the insight to what is absolutely central to this whole story. And that is what the author intends to be the main point. To the Hebrew reader, they're going, oh yeah, it's clear. But maybe not to us. We'll look at that in more detail in a moment. But to the original reader, the main star of the story is God himself. And the main plot line isn't the tent pegs or any human victory won. It is a story, though, of God's salvation for his people, an undeserving people like you and me. So what I'm going to do is introduce you briefly to the first, the three main characters of the story. Just follow with me um, as we go through them. Firstly, you'll note Deborah. It's the main, she's the judge, if you like. Uh, she's the main character, human character of the story. We see in verse 4, if you note, of chapter 4, she's a prophetess. Did you see that? That is, she is God's mouthpiece. And what she says, in two particular times, verse 5 and verse 15, is of critical importance. But also, in verse 5, she's, she holds a court, did you note that? Essentially to resolve people's disputes in the land. She was a judge, that word is literally a judge deliverer. But different from all other judges within this book, actually, uh, it wasn't just that she was a woman, and that is different because she's the only woman judge, but also is that because she uses more than just her sheer might in her work. We see her wisdom and her character being employed throughout the two chapters. Deborah was a judge who led beyond the battlefield, reminding us that God's chosen leader must not simply rescue but also rule. And so Deborah, more than pretty much any other judge, points us beyond the judges to the monarchy, the kings, and also to the Messiah, the great king, the Lord Jesus. Deborah is often used uh, by more liberal scholars, though, as an example of women leading God's people. And therefore, they would say things like, we ought to have more women in, in church leadership. Now, there's lots to say on this subject. There's a whole heap of say, and I don't want to, if you like, delve, we could spend the whole time looking at this. But I would gently warn us to say, Deborah is not the best place to look for that. Uh, simply because the judges are all, all there because they are misfits within Jewish society. They are all inappropriate within that culture in some way. The point is that God intervenes. He employs them, uses them. His spirit comes over them and uses them. But the big point is that is God is the worker here, not the judges. He uses people even through their weakness. And to say that we must have more women in the church, like Deborah, to use Deborah as the example, is to say we must have more men born of uh, prostitutes, like Jephthah. That we must have more compromising men, like Gideon and Samson. So if we use that model, it's not very helpful at all. I'm not commenting on that um, particularly, but you know, that's, that's, it's a poor use of scripture if we use Deborah Uh, to argue that point. But Deborah does have a key role. But it's not a huge role. And we must recognise that. Because all she does in chapter 4 is essentially speak, and then go with Barak, speak again in verse 15, and then chapter 5 have a little bit of a sing-song with Barak. 
That is all that she does. Uh, what she says is utterly invaluable in that she calls Barak and gives her God's uh, words, absolutely. But we mustn't be drawn to apply portions of God's word inappropriately from that. But Deborah's not alone in these uh, chapters. Have a look now. Uh, she's sent for Barak. You see him coming in chapter 4, verse 6. Have a look at him. And Deborah passes on his, um, God's instructions to him. And it will be Barak who takes the 10,000 men to defeat Sisera. The last main character, though, is Jael. So third main character, human character. You don't necessarily, as you say, want to go camping with this lady. She's introduced in verse 17 as Sisera flees. And you know the story. You've just heard it. What should have been a place of asylum, a safety for Sisera, becomes a place of his death. And it's an awful, unusual, even shameful death. And I don't know if you have a look. Have a look at verse 21. Um, these, the last three words of verse 21, how, you know, just kind of like unnecessary are those words. The man has had a tempeg plunged through his temple and he died. Well, there's a surprise. But it's the tent peg that perhaps is the most curious detail, isn't it? Surrounding Jael's inclusion uh, in the story. Why? Well, this is where maybe you don't get it, but it heightens the irony of the story, if you like. Because the setting up and the taking down of tents within that culture essentially was uh, the role of the lady. The men would go out and find the food and the, and the lady would put up uh, the tents. Therefore, the tent peg and the hammer were essentially the woman's household appliance of that time in that culture. And multiply that with the fact that to die at the hands of a woman was particularly humiliating in that kind of culture. All of this together is to design to show that Sisera's death was the most devastating defeat that was possible of that time. So the main human agency in these two chapters, the main human characters, three characters, are Deborah, Barak, and Jael. We've seen those. Now, we could, we could essentially structure the whole talk around that, but I wanted to then look at different aspects. So let's go now to the two perspectives of the story, if we can. Second point there. Now, we haven't read chapter 5, have we? But just look at verse 1, if you can. Do you notice the difference between the two chapters? Have a look. What's the main difference? Well, chapter 4 is history, and chapter 5 is a song. Now, they tell exactly the same story, but if you like, from different perspectives. Chapter 4 is a perspective of a historian, essentially, and chapter 5 is the perspective of a theologian. Someone who's uh, looking through, if you like, to see how God fits into that story, that history. And chapter 4, then, you'll see, we've read it, it plots all the details, doesn't it? The details are brief and they're constructed in this amazing shape. It is craftsmanlike. And, and it's particularly done, it's a very regular technique used and employed in the Old Testament. Essentially, it's called a chiasm. It's basically shaped as an onion is. You know, like you have a layer of onion on the top and it's the same layer on the bottom, isn't it? And if you cut through the onion, the next layer down is, is the same as the next layer at the bottom. Do you get the idea? And you get the centre bit of the onion, the onion as well. So all these layers kind of come up like that. And the first layer of chapter, five, of chapter four is essentially like the bottom layer. That is, it speaks of people who are oppressed. Firstly, in, chapter, in verses one to three, you get God's people are oppressed. And then at the bottom layer, you get then Jabin, the king of Canaan is oppressed and defeated, verse 23 and 24. 
The next layer in introduces the two women, Deborah at the top and Jael at the bottom. The next layer in, you've got Barak and Sisera in their flight and their fight, essentially. And then right in the centre, perfectly positioned by the author, purposely put there, is Yahweh, God, the Lord, the warrior king. And you see that. Right in the centre, he's showing that his intention is there. What is most important amongst all the detail is that God is central. Look at verse 14. Then Deborah said to Barak, go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? It's very clear to the the writer and certainly to the first readers that the Lord... God is central to this text. And it's his power and his saving work as he saves his people that right, should be right in the centre of our minds as we read it. So you see, the perspective of the historian is clear. But what about the perspective of the theologian in chapter 5? Well, have a look. In, in chapter 4, the Lord, that is God's covenant promise name, Yahweh in the Hebrew... It's mentioned just a few times, about four or five in chapter four. Now look at chapter five. Just have a look down. The first, let's say, three verses. How many times is the Lord, it's in capitals there, how many times is he mentioned there in chapter five? Well, it's loads of times. God is not dominant just in terms of frequency, but he's also the cause and the object of all the praise. Deborah and Barak in chapter five see that God's hand is behind all of these things. And what do they do? They celebrate. They celebrate his success and honour him with this continual praise, which is what chapter 5 is. I'm not going to focus too much on chapter 5 today. I mean, it's difficult when you get to the end, the song about J.L., you know, from verse 24 onwards. It must be difficult to sing a song about putting a tent peg through someone's head, but they see it as a cause of praise. But think of the balance here, just if we can apply this, if we can, for a moment to our lives. Think of the balance between chapter 4, this historical account, and chapter 5, the song of praise. Let me just quote on one uh, kind of uh, scholar on this balance. I found this really helpful this week. It's a paragraph, but I thought it would be really helpful to hear it. He says this, We can and should live our lives and order our memories, not only historically but theologically, not simply recollecting what happened or what we did, but searching out what God was doing. This keeps us from over-honouring ourselves in success or despairing in our struggles. Part of the key to enjoying peace is to be continually praising the Lord for what he has done and is doing for us. Because the story we tell of our lives is not so much about us as about him. I wonder when, when you look back over this weekend, for example, and I guess many of you have had a wonderful time out in the sun, enjoying friends, you know, going out on your bikes or having barbecues, all these things. I wonder what the refrain of your heart and voice will be. Will it be, I've had this, I've done that, I've engineered that wonderful weekend, I've enjoyed that wonderful weekend. Or will it be God has been very kind? God has been very good to provide the means by which I can have a lovely weekend. 
has given me family and friends to enjoy a wonderful weekend. I wonder what the refrain of your heart and, and voice will be. So there's these two perspectives of this story, the historical chapter 4 and the theological of chapter 5 in the song. But there's one main thing, one main theme. So our third little introductory point there, and it's the story of salvation. God is saving his covenant people whom he loves through individuals like Deborah, Barak and Jael. Of course, we know that already. I've mentioned it a number of times. But this is going to be the focus, as you see on on the main points, this is going to be the focus of what we're going to look at now. This story of salvation as it's plotted through this, uh, these two chapters. So we're going to see uh, the need for salvation in those early verses. And then the source of salvation. Then perhaps the problems as we look at that little story of JL. And then lastly the joy. The joy of salvation. Just a little cursory glance at the end of chapter 5. And I guess my prayer for myself and I hope for you as well. As we have been looking at this week really is that this story of salvation doesn't remain history for us. But rather it points us to the the great wonder of salvation that's been bought for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. So firstly, let's look at uh, the need for salvation. And here we're really focusing on verses 1 to 3 of chapter 4. Once again, just cast your eyes down there if you want to. Once again, these early verses, you see that kind of common cycle of judges. Remember we looked at this last week. First you get the, the, the people sin. You see that in verse 1. God sends a raider in, uh, in judgment against his people, to rebuke his people. And then the people cry out. We see that in verse 3. God sends them a judge or deliverer. We see that by verse 4, with Deborah being provided. And then he brings peace. That's the cycle. The sin, the raider, the cry, the judge, the peace. And by the first four verses of this chapter, we get the first four of that cycle of five. It will come, the peace comes right at the end, as Sisera is killed, uh, and Jabin the king is, uh, is essentially overrun. But this peace comes at the end. Yes, it does, but it's part of an ever kind of decreasing uh, peace, as God's people are on this depressing and downward spiral, which is what the book of Judges is all about, really. It's quite depressing. And it ends in that awful verse. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. See, the big picture of Judges is this sobering reminder that all of us would do the same. Without the merciful intervention of God in our lives, through the loving salvation and rule of Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour, the whole book shouts the point, uh, but in verse four, uh, sorry, chapter 4, verse 1 to 3, the need for salvation is clear. Despite the downward spiral, we need salvation. Look at verse 1. The Israelites once again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now if you go back to chapter 2, verse 11, you can see particularly what that was. They were turning to Baals, that is they're worshipping idols. And all that came around that, which is pretty nasty stuff, as I pointed out last week. But I guess with this just beginning verse, we get an idea of what sin is really like. There's a depressing monotony in doing the same thing again and again and again. We're only in chapter 4. And God's people have done this again and again and again. 
In sin, there's very little creativity, is there? Sin never lends itself to originality. It probably begins as some kind of exciting rebellion, and you kind of, you know, but very quickly, it becomes a boring routine that lacks any kind of fresh excitement. And we see that here in Israel, and I guess it resonates in our own hearts and minds when we look at that, that sin in our own lives. Sin is addictive, but it, we must see that what it leads to is quite repetitive, quite dull. Hence, when we sin again, we just go, oh, not again. But notice the circumstances that lead to Israel once again turning from God to sin. Chapter, one, sorry, chapter 4, verse 1. Look what happened. Ehud died. I guess it's like, I don't remember this. It's quite a while for some of us. When you were in school, what happened when the teacher went out the room? Did you all kind of go, oh yeah, let's carry on working, let's be diligent? Or was a few few things thrown at people, the the noise raises, doesn't it? And so on. We know what it's like. Ehud dies. The restraining presence has gone. And now what happens? The strong external pressure goes and everyone goes a bit wild. They begin essentially to show their true character. And I guess it's a sobering warning for all of us really. There's something very wrong if you, if you find you can only live out your Christian life with the presence of a strong external pressure around you. You know, if your Christian mates aren't looking... Yeah, just, let's just say you're with your girlfriend or boyfriend or your, or your you know, people from work. What do you get up to then? Without the external pressure of people around you. If you have no inclination to obey the word of God at that point, then please be warned. The need for salvation is clear here uh, in the people of Israel. They're in desperate need. They're turning their backs on God. And God hands them, therefore, verse 2, over to Jabin, king of Canaan. And recognize right at the beginning here, this is a just judgment. They're being handed over. In verse 3, we see the movement from the Bronze Age to the Iron Age. I don't know if you spotted that, historians. The people of God are lagging behind. That is, they're not very... Now in even greater need, as their opposition are much more battle-ready than they are. The need for salvation is clear for the people of Israel, as I guess it's clear for us in our own lives. So let's look at the source of salvation. Wherever you look through uh, both chapters, the source of salvation is clear. Look at Deborah's words, if you can, to Barak in verse 6 and 7 of chapter 4. The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, go take with you 10,000 men. And then the words come through to verse 7. Verse seven. I will lure Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. Then in verse 15, you'll notice the author is clear that it's the Lord who brought Sisera into Barak's hands. It's the Lord again and again and again. He's the one in control. He's going to be the source of salvation of God's people. Now it does seem rather strange, doesn't it, uh, that this how a modern army with far greater numbers of men would fall. How are God's men under Barak going to defeat Sisera? It seems impossible. And we can see it's God's work and although we know the geography 
We're unsure of how that this is going to be done. That's why chapter 5 actually becomes helpful. Uh, so you, get the, you actually begin to see the source of this rescue and salvation. Uh, have a look at chapter 5, verse 4. And you'll see there, O Lord, uh, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the land of Edom, the earth shook and the heavens poured. The clouds poured down with water. Go through to verse 20 of that chapter. From the heavens the stars fought. From their courses they fought against Sisera. And, and the point is, what he's saying is that there's, there's thunderstorms. Those, that language of verse 20 is, is thunderstorms. And the language of verse 4 is downpours of rain. And what really happened is that God employed a massive rainstorm. Uh, the river Kishon was swelled and Sisera's modern technology, his iron chariots, you kind of think stealth bombers, don't you, today, you know, they get washed down into the river. Literally went down the drain. See, God is using and employing all that is around to fulfill his sovereign purposes. Uh, Also, he uses, of course, human agency as well, people to complete his sovereign purposes. And Deborah makes this clear, chapter 4, verse 9, when she prophesies before Barak that Sisera will not fall because of him. What a shock. But I'm the army general. No, it's going to be at the hands of a woman. And in those times, that was the most outrageous thing that you possibly could have said. It's so unusual that the woman, a woman, would bring back the prize, if you like, of the killed warlord, the enemy. Therefore, when it happened as predicted, you know, with JL and the tent peg, there could be no doubt that God is behind it. He's the source of salvation. It's very hard to stomach that, though, isn't it? We can see that God is in control. We can see that he's sovereign. But we'd rather that he was sovereign over the nice things. Do you know what I mean? You know, tent pegs in temples is, is, is hard for us to stomach. Even harder to speak of outside of these four walls. We'd love for God to be sovereign over the kind and generous and loving things. But these, this seems a bit barbaric, doesn't it? Should God always be soft and gentle, though? How can Deborah, for example, look at chapter 4, verse 14, depict him as in such kind of warrior kind of who fights for his people kind of phrases? I don't know about you, but you may have, in our contemporary culture, done what many people do. And that is kind of sanitize God to be this cuddly and loving, um, omnipotent, yes, Lord. Yet what you've done is you've removed his justice. You've removed essentially his just vengeance. And if you've done that, please be careful. Because if you think, if you put it to our lives today, if you think God is just the kind and soft and gentle one, then you'll probably end up like Israel in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 4. Well, God is infinitely loving. Of course he is. He's demonstrated that supremely through the gift of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet he is also intimately involved in the justice within this story and salvation of his people. So we see their need for salvation. We see the source of their salvation is supremely for God. And now briefly, the problem of salvation. Let's look now, verse 17 to 22, that difficult story of uh, Jael. I wanted to pick up one little note, though. Have a look at verse 11 of chapter 4 before we get to 
Jael because it sets the context of the Kenites. It's an interesting little note of the author uh, in verse 11. It kind of pops out of nowhere, really. Heba, the Kenite, moved. It's an incidental detail at that point. But God in his sovereignty knew why. Look at verse 17. This is where Sisera flees and, he, and where he gets to know a tent peg as well. But of course, this story just brings up problem after problem for many of us. It's difficult to read of God saving his people, but using such treachery, essentially. Jail is not a picture of perfection. Sister in verse, four, uh, verse 18 came to Heber's camp. Why? Because they had a treaty with each other. Essentially, it would be like us trying to find asylum within, you know, kind of an embassy within a country around the world, a war-torn country. The place of safety, essentially. What happens, verse 18, Jael kind of flatters him, lures him into his tent, puts him under a blanket for safety, gives him a drink, verse 19. He clearly expects Jael's tent, in verse 20, to be a safe haven, doesn't he? And yet, verse 21, and he died. And we know the details. And at that point, it's a very difficult story to own, isn't it? It's very difficult to say, this is my God, who's sovereign over this. Once again, people like to say, oh, the hammer points beyond it itself. Um, like the, the sword of Ehud last week, I said, a lot of liberal scholars like to say that the sword of e- um, that killed Ehud is actually just figurative. And it's really the sword of the spirit, you know, the word of God, like in Ephesians 6. And, and, and actually, this is not really a literal hammer. It's more kind of the hammer as in Jeremiah 29, which is the hammer of God's word. There's nothing figurative here. It's a real hammer and a real tent peg and a real temple and a real man. Sometimes these dilemmas uh, are very difficult to solve. But we must remember that we must distinguish between what the Bible reports and what it recommends. Or between what the Bible says and what it supports. For example, uh, one of the most popular ways of looking at this throughout the Bible is the Bible may report that David had multiple wives, as it does in 2 Samuel chapter 3. But it doesn't recommend it, authorise it. Or say, do likewise. But the problem we have is that that in God saving his people, he employs Jael and actually approves throughout the Bible of Jael. If we say Jael is wrong of acting in this way, we have to then say, well, Deborah's wrong because Deborah celebrates Jael. If you have a look at chapter 5, verse 24, uh, Jael's the blessed woman there in in Deborah's song. It's interesting, just flip back one verse actually in, uh, in chapter 5, verse 23. Who's cursed? Well, it's the village of Meroz. Why? Because they did not come to help. Because they did nothing. They're the ones who are condemned. So what do we do with a story like this? It, it, it's a problem because some people feel that it's a, it, it's a problem. It's hard to read, isn't it? But again, we must view, as we viewed last week, we must view it as an act of justice. Because Sisera had severely oppressed God's people. Look back at chapter 4, verse 3. He makes it very clear at the beginning. He'd been an evil oppressor. Go back, go forward, sorry, to chapter 5, verse 30. I won't read it out. It's not very nice at all. But you'll see there. 
what he was really like. Sisera is no Mr. Nice Guy. Justice is being done here. Yes, it is brutal. Yes, it is bloody. But it brings God's people to salvation. Lastly, one comment on the joy of salvation, if I may. Our fourth point there. I don't want to mention, I could go have a whole week on on chapter 5, but we've got about two minutes. I think the song, as I've mentioned already, is in its entirety is a good reminder that the song of our hearts and our lives ought to be one of praise and of worship, adoring the one who has brought us salvation. When Jesus died, it was a divine act of justice. Yes, it was bloody. Yes, it was brutal. And yet Jesus Christ did, yes, willingly have nails hammered into his hands and feet for me and you to purchase our salvation. Where, where we once again sin before God, where we deserve justice, if we trust in the sovereign provision of God through his son, Jesus Christ, we can be lifted away from the mud and the mire of our lives and our sin is washed in Jesus the point of this song, although it, it reflects so much of God's salvation and on the vivid pictures that the history presents of chapter 4, it is essentially joy, joy, joy. The joy of the salvation that has been bought for the God's people here is on their lips, it's in their lives, as it ought to be for us, as we recall the bloody work of Jesus Christ on the cross. We have a great and powerful God, yes. And he is to be feared, as you should see in these verses here. But in and through Jesus Christ, he's loved us infinitely. And he's willing to lift us up and bring us salvation through his son. There is much joy to be had as we read these verses. Yes, we need to look at the detail. It is difficult. But I guess at the end point, where we leave today is recalling. It's recalling God's intervention in our lives through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And yes, it's as gory as some of these pictures here, and yet it has brought us a marvellous salvation. Let's rejoice, in a sense. Chapter 5, take it big picture. May it be on your hearts, on your lips. Don't necessarily sing a song. For some of you, that would be awful. <laughs> but no, I'm joking. But, you know, but let it be the tune of our hearts and our minds as we go about the week ahead, rejoicing in all that God has done for us through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray as we close.